Well, we're really privileged and honoured uh, this morning to have uh, an incredible man of God come and uh, preach the word. We've known uh, Pastor Daryl and Elaine for a number of years, um, going back, uh, oh, I don't know, heaps of years, to be honest. Um, what's always struck me with Pastor Daryl is his humility and his genuine love and care for people. Whenever I have seen him interacting with people, he always comes with encouragement. He always lifts people up. He always leaves them better than when they came to him. He's a, a man of God who has an, an ability to, to understand the word of God and to do things uh, and to establish things that are absolutely amazing. And I'm, I just want to read out some of the blurb that we uh, had from uh, uh, to, to help you understand Pastor Darrell uh, in relation to... The the, the, uh, the quality of what God's doing in and through him. He is the uh, program director for the Bachelor of Ministry program and the associate degree program uh, person for Alpha Crucius College. Prior to joining Alpha Crucius College, Pastor Darrell was involved in pastoral ministry for over 30 years, starting out as a youth pastor, still is one apparently, so uh, upon his graduation from Bible College, and then being involved in pioneer, mid-size and large mega churches in an associate and senior pastor roles in churches across Australia. He served in the AOG or ACC in various roles such as Youth Alive, District and Regional Leadership, State Executive Membership and was Vice President of the State Executive in South Australia until he relocated to a place across the border that we won't mention right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, incredible man of God, has an incredible understanding of the Word of God. He's uh, just had printed a, a book uh, which is As For Me and My House, and top 12 in uh, Amazon bestseller list uh, is my understanding. So it's a great, great read. I would encourage you to do whatever it is that you need to do to grab a hold of, of the book because uh, I believe that there's some principles and things that will help you and set you up so that you too can leave a legacy that lasts beyond your generation to the generations that are to come, should the Lord tarry. So how about we stand this morning, and let's welcome Pastor Darrell as he comes to preach the Word of God this morning. So welcome Pastor Darrell. It's great to be here, and you know what? Uh, we've just, my wife and I, and family have just continued just to do what Jesus tells us to do. And so... At around 2010, I was praying and I felt the Lord say to me, in your post-pastoral years, you'll be teaching at Bible college. And so I thought, oh, okay, so what do I do about that? I better start preparing for that. And so I began to do a doctorate through Tabor College here, um, one of Matthew's opposition colleges. But <laughs> and... Uh, Alpha Crucis at that stage didn't have any doctoral ministry. And so I thought, well, I better start preparing. God didn't say do a doctor. He said, you'll be teaching in a college when you finish pastoring. And I thought, and I'm still in my 50s, I thought that was going to be in my 60s or 70s. But I thought, well, I better start doing that. And then at the age of 54, 54 uh, Steve Fogarty from Alpha Crucis then asked me to come on board. And it was sort of all lined up. 
And so we felt that's what God had called us to do. So we did cross the border. We now live in Sydney, but let me tell you, we have quarantined for two weeks before we came here. Had to sort of stay in a little hotel, not go out the door for two weeks, and except for going out to be tested for COVID. So we got tested and found us to be negative. It's the first time I've liked the word negative. Um, you're negative. Yay, I'm negative. Um, normally I like to be positive. And so uh, that's been our journey. And um, as Gary said, that book is the result of doing a doctorate. So I transferred my doctorate then from um, Tabor to Alpha Crucis into a PhD. And I came to the point of what am I going to write a 100,000-word thesis about? You know, what, what can I do? And so I thought, well, I've got to write something I'm passionate about. You know, some people have done doctorates and it's, you know, why Moses has three nasal hairs in his left nostril and <laughs> what they mean and, or whatever. And you think, some people's doctorates, you think, why? What's that got to do? Some obscure thing. But I want to do, do a doctorate that would actually help people and do research that would people could grow from and learn from and, and go forward from. And so my two passions are my family, of course, and have our son and our daughter-in-law is not well this morning, otherwise she'd be here, and our little grandson, Jonty, is why we did two weeks quarantine, just to meet Jonty, who was born in March and we hadn't met him yet, so we finally got to meet little Jonty. And so my passion is my family, and we also have a daughter, Hannah, who's a kids pastor at IC Church, and she has three children, and her and her husband attend there. And then we have our, our youngest daughter, Kayla, who's our, our foster daughter, came to us when she was five months old. She's now 25, and she's also serving the Lord in a C3 church in Sydney. And so it's been good. So I've been passionate about our family, but I'm also passionate about ministry. And when I started out in ministry, I graduated from the college that I'm now teaching at in 1984. And Matthew was born in 1984. And we sort of thought, how do you do ministry, family? How do you be a father? How do you, you know, care for the flock, care for your family? Do that in balance. Over the years, I'd seen quite a few people that had been, you know, serving the Lord and yet seen their kids drift away and seen the heartache of that. And, and so when I started my research and started interviewing pastors and their spouses, um, several came and said, look, we don't have a good story, but we'd like to tell our story if it can help other people. And so in that book that's come out of that research, there's stories of pastors who have been brokenhearted. There's stories of people have, you know, some of the questions is, what would you do differently if you had your time over again? And, and what are things that have worked for you? And so on. And so there's been a, a whole lot of real-life stories. The first chapter of the introduction chapter is a little bit academic, uh, purely because it's also to be used as a textbook in pastoral classes and so on. So I thought I'd better put a bit of academic stuff into it. But when it comes down to it, I'm a tradie from Melbourne. I did an apprenticeship as a toolmaker and then went off to Bible college, and then from there on just followed what God told me to do next. So I don't see myself as an academic. I see myself as a pracademic. You know, what's practical, we want to help people in a practical way. And so that's, that's the result of my research. But in that, I just have a passion for Christian families as well. 
And I'm going to talk about, and my theme today is As For Me In My House. And the theme is really about having a generational transformation. And, you know, even in my own family, my parents were Christians and some, some of my, I have five sisters, one's in heaven and, and four others, and seeing them drift away and so on and, and the heartache of that, but to see generational transformation. And so when I started out in ministry, there wasn't anything available for pastors, any research or anything to help pastors see what's normal. And so when I began to do my research and I was doing some round tables in some various regions around South Australia where I was on state exec at the time and I'd sit around the table with pastors and their spouses and say, what are some of the challenges that being in ministry um, has an effect on your family? And so people were starting to list these things. We had a whiteboard, filled the whole whiteboard up. But the interesting thing was couples were saying, do you have that problem too? I thought I was the only person. We thought we were the only persons that argued on the way to church because we're running late. You know, uh, we were thought we, yeah, we, we've had that problem. Oh, so it's not so abnormal. We're not freaks because you go to a state or national conference and how are you? You speak to another pastor and their, their spouse, how are you? Oh, we're awesome. And we drive home thinking, we're not so awesome. What's wrong with us? You know, everyone else is awesome. We're not so awesome when we go home. And so, but as I began to find out a lot of normal things and normalizing some of the challenges that even pastors and their families, except your pastor and his wife, they're, they're perfect. But other pastors, um, it sort of released people as well to know that, hey, okay, well, we have similar challenges, but how do we overcome those challenges and, and what works for us? But, you know, this flows down not just through ministry. It flows down through our lives as Christians as well. And so I think you've got the overhead behind me. Yep. If we go to the next um, slide there, I want to look at the attitudes of Joshua compared to the attitude of King Hezekiah towards family. And I want to just speak about, I know the theme is relationships at the moment. And so the theme that I want to speak about is your generational relationships. To see not just yourself full on for God, but to see your family going for generations. And, and when I say that, I also want to qualify, like I have when I speak to pastors and their spouses about this, is, you know, sometimes things happen. And sometimes our kids drift away and there's no condemnation in Christ. And so my heart is because it was nothing for us. So quite a few of our ministry friends, children don't serve the Lord anymore because there was nothing to help them to show you how do you do this thing. And, and so they'd throw themselves full into ministry. They'd take that scripture unless a, a man you know, hates his family and his mother and his father and, and serves me. He's not worthy of serving me and, and so on. And so people would say, well, I've just got to do everything for the kingdom without realizing that they needed to bring their family along the journey with them. And so, you know, they didn't realize that. They were passionate, just wanting to build the kingdom and wanting to plant a church or wanting to grow the church and all of that. And in the midst of that, didn't sort of pay or be intentional as far as their family was concerned. So I don't want to bring any condemnation in that. And I'm going to believe by the end of tonight, we're going to speak over your family 
We're going to speak over families in this community that they would have a generational transformation. The Bible promises that those who follow the Lord for a thousand generations, there will be a blessing. You know, for sin, it's three or four generations. For the blessing of God for a thousand generations. So we want to declare that over your life as well. And one of the things that's been happening even in my own family, my dad was saved out of from having an alcoholic father, 16 kids in my dad's family. And so all of his family and sisters and brothers just had small families of 7, 8, 11, you know, (laughs) didn't end up with 16. But my nana turned 100 and she had 364 direct descendants that had come out of her body. And so, and that's, you know, there's more now because we've got grandchildren and so on. And so the fact is that you know, there's generations that God wants to raise up. But my dad got saved out of the fire. He got saved out of this family whose his dad was an alcoholic and so on. And yet, when God saw that 14-year-old give his life to Jesus, God didn't just see my dad's five foot five, or he was at his tallest. He's probably about five foot one now or whatever. He's 88 years of age. But he didn't see that 14-year-old and, and just see him. He saw generations. You know, he saw me preaching today when I wasn't even, you know, a glint in my father's eye. He saw Matthew being a pastor. And this morning when I was hug- hugging little Jaunty and, and praying, you know, the Holy Spirit to touch him. And he's five months old, but to see generations, to see, you know, what God saw in that 14-year-old in my grandfather, to see a thousand generations serving God and loving God and full of the Spirit of God. And so Joshua's attitude was, well, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's saying, choose who you want to serve. But as for me, not just for me, but as for me and my house, we want to see generations serving the Lord. We want to see generations going to heaven. And last year at our national conference, I was speaking to a guy named John Hunt, who's a state president in Queensland, and as we're talking and we're watching people crossing the road, he said, every one of these pastors, they want their kids in the kingdom. Every one of these pastors want to know their kids are going to go to heaven. They want to know, you know, generations going to heaven, but sometimes they just don't know, how do you do that sort of thing? And so he was encouraging me in what I was doing there. In the same sense, every one of us today, if you've got children, you want to see your Children, go to heaven. You want to see your children's children. And our friend Maggie, who's here today, prays for little grandchildren and talks to them about Jesus. And, you know, the fact is most people have said, you know, I thank God for a praying mother, a praying grandmother that pray for me. They don't often talk about praying fathers or grandfathers, but there's something special. And in the research I did, they said most times people that talk about why They've stayed in the church and talking to adults have continued on in their faith. They'll come back to a mother and come back to a grandmother and talk about them because obviously as they're growing up, they'd have a lot more to do with their mother or grandmother than perhaps their father who was off at work and stuff like that. So mothers, be encouraged. Keep praying, keep encouraging, keep speaking over your children, your grandchildren, and so on. And my sisters who, a couple of my sisters who have drifted away, they've been saying to my mum recently, you know, I'm reading the Bible because 
this COVID thing, is it one of those plagues in Revelation that we learned about? Or, you know, what is it? And starting to pray more and, and I'm believing in God again, you know, and, and so on. And, and my dad, who prayed for his sisters and his family for a long time, and they used to see us as a wowser family because we were Christians, so we didn't drink, we didn't swear, we didn't whatever. And one of my cousins who's come to the Lord recently said to me the other day, because she rang and wants to get a copy of my book for her pastor up in Queensland, she said, you know, when we were all young, we used to see your family come, there's that crazy, there's that weird family. But we wish we had have stopped and listened to why you were weird. And um, because they've gone through a whole lot of stuff as a result of that. You know, the key is we've got to keep serving the Lord. We've got to keep, you know, living for Jesus and not allowing compromise for the sake of it. And so, so here we have this declaration, as for me and my house, this is Joshua's declaration, we will serve the Lord. And yet we have Hezekiah, if we go to the next attitude. And Hezekiah He's talking here, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message, because Hezekiah had been showing off to the Babylonians and so look how much wealth we have, look how, how blessed I am and so on and you know I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal and, and just with pride shows the queen of Sheba and shows other kings around and Isaiah then says to him, why'd you do that? There's a time coming Verse 17, when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of, king, of Babylon's king. Verse 19, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the message you have given me from the Lord is good. Can you imagine? This is a good message because my sons and daughters and generations are going to be taken into captivity. The message is good. Why is it good? Because the king was thinking at least there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Who cares about the generations that follow as long as it's okay for me? What a terrible attitude. God wants us to have an attitude of, no, that can't be, rather than feeling relieved, well, it's not going to happen in my generation. He should have been repenting. And say, God, forgive me. If you read the first half of that particular chapter in one or Second Kings 20, there's a story about when Hezekiah was told, the Isaiah came and said, you're going to die of this disease. And it says he turned his face to the wall and he prayed. And then God sends the prophet back and says, you give you another 15 years. And so you think, well, that worked. He didn't die. Well, why can't I repent and change God's mind about this curse over future generations. But no, that's good news because at least I'll be okay in my generation. We've got to have a passion for future generations. I don't want to be a father or a grandfather that doesn't care about the, the well-being and the spiritual well-being of generations to come. I want to be a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, if the Lord allows me to live that long, to, and you know, praying for for a thousand generations for the kingdom of God. And so Hezekiah's attitude is not the attitude that we encourage. Joshua chose, choose this day. Well, I choose to serve the Lord. You know, God chose us, but in a sense, he chose us not against our will. He chose us and then we responded to that choice. 
You know, the devil's also chosen to kill, steal, and destroy us. God chose us to give us life and life abundantly in John chapter 10, verse 10. So we have these two choices. The ultimate choice is like in an election, whoever gets the highest choice. So the devil's chosen, God's chosen, then we make the ultimate choice to tip the scales one way or the other. Choose this day. Well, I choose life. In another scripture here, and there's a lot of scriptures that I've got there about God giving choice, but I don't know what time we finish. Is it 3 o'clock or 3.30? So um, we finish about 11.30? Okay. Someone once took their Anglican friend to um, a service, their Pentecostal friend to an Anglican service. They said, if I come to your church, you come to my church. So they went... And in the service, they had numbers up on the side, the hymn numbers. And, and the Pentecostals said, what's that all about? Oh, they're the hymns that we're going to sing. And then they did various things. And the Pentecostal would say to his angry, what's that? Oh, this is what that's about. And this is what's that. And he's explaining the whole thing. And then they get in the Pentecostal service and people are lifting their hands. What's that? Worshipping God. People are singing tongues. Well, that's what we do. We pray in the Holy Spirit and all of that. And then they get up and the preacher puts, takes his watch off and puts it on the pulpit. And he says, well, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, but let me tell you, friends, I, I want to encourage you in the things of God. Make a choice to live for God. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you death and life, a life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. There's a generational thing about you and your children. You're believing not just for your own life, but your children. And so when you make a choice to live for God, you're making a choice for generations. Now, one of the things that breaks my heart over the years of pastoring is you'd see couples that sort of say, well, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And so they'd stop going to church. And then you see their children, where are your children? Oh, they don't believe in God and it's the church's fault. Why is the church? Well, you know, the church didn't do this. No, you stop going to church. By go, stopping going to church, what you said to your children is church isn't really that important. And then what you're really saying is God isn't that important because people connect church and when we come to fellowship, the church is not perfect apart from this church. Most churches aren't perfect. So if you want to get offended, you want to get hurt, go to church. It's going to happen. There's people there and they're broken people and they're people with various agendas. They're people, you know, that think, well-meaning people think they're doing the right thing. One of my sisters, there was this couple of missionary ladies that had come off the field. They were retired when I grew up at a church in Victoria in Oakley. And my sisters were whispered to each other once and behind them were sitting these two missionary ladies and they get this great big poke in the middle of her back for my sister. And the missionary lady wasn't being nasty. She was, pay attention to the word of God. But my sister was offended by that, of course. How dare that lady? She was a missionary. That really hurt me. She, you know, that sort of thing. Well-meaning sometimes, but not necessarily with the, the results that you want to happen. But in the same sense, we've got to have this attitude of, okay, let's keep going. 
explaining, hey, people aren't perfect. I remember at the age of 17, I didn't want to go to church anymore. I was sitting in the foyer of our church watching cars turning up. And I remember my youth leaders, as we're there and I'm just waiting for my friends, and the youth leaders are criticising people as they're getting out of their cars, criticising their cars, criticising uh, what they're wearing and stuff. And I looked up to my youth leaders and I thought, I don't want to be part of this church anymore. These guys are hypocrites. These, how dare they talk about God's people like that? And I already had the call of God in my life, a passion for the things of God. But I went home and said to my parents, I don't want to go to church anymore. If that's what church is all about, I don't want to go. And my parents said to me, they said, don't look to man. Don't look to human beings. They're always going to let you down. Keep your eyes on God and the principles of God. And you rise above those principles. And I'll be honest with you, there's been times when I've probably let people down. My humanity has got in the way of my anointing and so on. And I pray, God, don't, don't let people drift from the church because something that I have done to hurt them and so on. But we are. We've got human beings in church. Our pastors are human beings. Our board members are human beings. They are going to let you down. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I choose life in God. But I need the church. I want to tell you, in New South Wales, we can't have church. We have to sit on our lounge chairs with our coffee and our toast on our lap watching TV and watching church on TV. But I want to tell you, coming back to South Australia and worshipping, being in corporate worship, it's like, oh, God, we have missed this so much. And I have to go back to that. Although next week I'm speaking at a small uh, Indonesian church that can meet, but you've got to meet, sit four metres apart from each other. And so you turn around and greet one of the, hello, how are you over there? You know, and, uh, and so on. But most churches can't gather because their buildings are too small for the amount. And so they've got church online. There's nothing like worshipping in the house of God. Choose life that you and your children, think about the generations that come, may live. 1 Peter 1.3, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. He's given us new birth. Don't forget that. Don't forget, but you want to pass that life on like yeast that will go into the next generation that will be captured and grow in their hearts and that they will pass it on to the next generation so that that life will continue to flow. Make a choice to serve him. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In my research, and, and sometimes I was trying to research just pastors and their families and so on, but in my research um, in the US when they were asking just normal adults, why do you continue in the faith of your parents? One of the things that they said was because our parents didn't just go to church, they served. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, my, my dad... We'd get to church before the pastor. And my dad left school at the age of 12 and worked in the market garden. And his market garden, um, the owner of the business, said to him, John, if you come to church with me, I'll buy you a suit. In 1946, people wore suits to church and ties and stuff. And my dad, from 16 kids, 14 years of age, never had a suit. So I only have to come once? Yep, you come once. I'll buy you a suit so you can wear to church. So my dad thought that's a pretty good deal and suits were expensive. So he, he got his suit, went to church and at that church, which was Oakley in Melbourne, the pastor, Pastor Luke and his wife then invited my dad back for lunch. 
and led him to Jesus. And then, as I said, that 14-year-old, in him it has been generations of people that are loving and serving God. One act of generosity. You know, sometimes we don't realize one act of generosity continues on. The amount of thousands of my dad and mum, you know, they've got a couple of thousand dollars because they're in Victoria. They've been saving their tithes and putting it away in this envelope. And they've got thousands of dollars waiting for when church opens again. So I said to them the other day, write a check and send it to the church because you don't want to get robbed. You've got all this money sitting in your cupboards and stuff like that. But, you know, just them, and that's just been in months. So the thousands of dollars, thousands of thousands, from ourselves giving and tithing, our children who give and tithe unto the Lord. So one little act of generosity has just continued forever because we will serve the Lord. So my dad would get there early and get the red hymn books out. And we had a blue book at night for choruses and a red book in the morning for hymns. And so that was, and he'd get there early, I've got to get the hymn books out, I've got to get the chorus books out, I've got to make sure. And then after church, I, so I felt God had called me to minister. I just wanted to serve God and 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm going to serve God today. I'm going to go and collect all the hymn books from the back of the chairs and pack them up and put them away. And so and there's something about serving God that actually becomes, in a sense, contagious. And just that sense, I'm doing something for God. I'm doing something for Jesus. And coming from seven kids that I did, I, I was like so shy that I wouldn't say boo to a goose. And so I never saw myself as a preacher. I knew God had called me for something, but there wasn't that sense that I'd be standing in front of people. The first time I had to speak, I was 13, asked to do a Bible reading in my youth group of 20. And I was so nervous that tears welled up in my eyes. I couldn't even see the pages. And I sat down after that and said, God, I know I'm not called to preach. I can't stand in front of people. And so there's got to be something that I can do. But at the same time, it's, it was serving. How can we serve? I want to encourage you. Have a, an openness to serve, whatever it may be, because it becomes contagious. And so with the research in America, people that went to church regularly, people that served in some capacity in the church, their children continued in their faith. And thirdly, the children who were then encouraged to go to youth group. And so the, the peer... Uh, positive peer pressure that other young people have. And so when we were pastoring in Melbourne, in Croydon, and our children were coming in their teenage years, we took over a, a very small church with 15 to 20 people, and they, were, they didn't have children, they were older sort of people. And then the church began to grow with young families starting to come with lots of kids, but our kids were the oldest. So they get into teenage years and going to high school, uh, wasn't a Christian school, and we were concerned that the peer pressure that was coming to them was not so much Christian, but um, in a sense non-Christian, and we were concerned. And so we thought, God, we, we need to make a decision here. And so we moved from Victoria. Danny Guglamucci said, I have a vision of people crossing Victoria's borders with suitcases coming to help us build the church. And so I thought, well, maybe that's us. And so we came over here, brought our children over, got them in a good youth group at Westside Church at the time and, uh, and saw them flourish. And we were willing to put our ministry aside for the sake of our family. And, uh, and thank God we did. Matthew met a beautiful South Australian girl and married her, my daughter Hannah. She's married a, a 
Queenslander who came to South Australia with his dad, to pastor and um, and married who calls himself South Australian because he barracks for the crows, um, but and so the fact is sometimes you've got to think intentionally about that. You know, some people say, well, the whole thing of God, then family, then ministry is sort of that, that's legalistic. But in my research, when I was asking people about their journey and and their intentions and their commitment to their families. The pastors that said, well, it's always been God first, then our family, and then our ministry. Others that said, oh, no, it's all complementary. Whatever, you know, we're, we're into God, we're into family, we're into church, we're into... And so all the complementary stuff, it all get mixed up, and there was no intention for their families. But those that were God, then family, then ministry, tended to have a satisfactory end story. In fact, all of those that said were intentional about their family, God first in the family and then their ministry, all their kids are still following Jesus. Those that said, oh, it's all complimentary, all their kids, the people that said that, none of their kids are following Jesus or some of them have drifted away and you think, well, we need to be intentional. We will serve the Lord as for me and my house. There's a guy, make a choice for the salvation, not just to serve the Lord, for the salvation of future generations. And so in Joshua where he says, as for me and my house, there's a sense of generations there. And so there's a guy named Max Jukes who lived in New York. He didn't believe in Jesus or in Christian upbringing or anything like that. He refused to take his children to church when it was common that people would at least take their children to Sunday school. And even when they asked to go, he said, no, we don't believe in that stuff. He had 1,026 descendants. 300 were sent to prison for an average of term of 13 years. 190 were public prostitutes. 680 were admitted alcoholics. This is out of 1,026. His family thus far had cost the state of New York at that stage, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars in just care, civil care of the family. Jonathan Edwards also lived in the same state at the same time as Max Dukes. He loved the Lord and saw that his children were in church every week. And of those children of his, of 929 descendants, 430 became ministers, 86 became university professors. 13 became university presidents, 75 authored books, 7 were elected to the United States Congress, 1 was vice president of America. His family never cost the state one cent but had contributed immeasurably to the life. See, the key is bring people up in the house of God. My brother who's not a minister said, you know, if it wasn't for church... I wouldn't fully understand how to relate to people of different generations. My brother's into sales. He's learned how to read people from church. He learned how to understand and listen to people and empathize with people. Although when I have a conversation with him now, it's one way he does the talking. I do the listening. Um, It's sort of like he sees an ear and his mouth opens immediately. (laughs) But... um, But he sort of said to me, you know, Daryl, if it wasn't for church and being able to relate to people of different generations and and that, I wouldn't be where I am now in my career. 
It's just helped me to understand people, helped me to succeed as far as people are concerned. And so coming up, bringing your children, praying and, and making it a priority and being intentional about those things for generations to come. I have, no, I better not say it, that's probably too close to the bone. I have known people that have stopped going to church and their kids and their grandkids. I sat, used to sit in church next to a, a young man that, whose dad was on the board of church and during church, He'd want to play games all the time when the pastor was preaching. And so we're at 10 or 11. I'd been born again at the age of nine, baptized in the Holy Spirit at 10 and just wanted to, hungry for God. And he'd want to play games, noughts and crosses or with the hymn books. Let's find hymn number 722, you know. And I say, no, we've got to listen. The pastor's preaching. He goes, no, it's all right. Dad says the pastor's an idiot. I don't need to listen to him. From home, being told the pastor's an idiot. How do you listen? How can you listen? That particular 11, 12-year-old, whatever he was at that stage, is now 60, 61. He's an alcoholic. He's had two marriages. He's got children that no longer serve the Lord. He's got grandchildren that don't know God. Because somewhere along the line, his parents sort of said, don't bother listening to the pastor. He's an idiot. So important that when we're raising people up, we're thinking, how is this affecting the next generation? And probably we've all made mistakes where we've got frustrated with someone at church and so on that has, you know, but just to, to think about that. I'd go home and my parents, as I said, they were simple. They weren't academic in any sense of the word. Dad left school at the age of 12. Mum left school at the age of 13 and just got jobs during the Depression and so on, just needed to, you know, earn some money to survive. And so they, they didn't have an education. And my mum would say to me, Daryl, if you become a garbage keeper, if that's what God wants you to do, I know you'll succeed at it. If you become a pastor, you'll succeed. If you become whatever, you'll succeed at it. You've just got to work hard. You've just got to give yourself to it and so on. And so we'd get home from church and we'd sit and and talk sitting around the table with seven kids and when Elaine joined us there was more people and my sisters bring their boyfriends home this great big table and sitting around the table all chatting away but my parents would often say yeah when Pastor Busey who was a pastor at the time preached what he was preaching about God had been speaking to me about that during the week I was reading that scripture and then he's, oh, it's so wonderful going to church, so wonderful hearing the word of God and, and always speaking and building up the house of God and building up the church. And, and they were so honourable, they would call even people their own age and younger than themselves like Mr. O'Keefe or Mr. Potts and stuff and we're thinking, they're your age, just call them by their first name. No, we honour them. He's on the board or he's a Sunday school teacher or, or whatever. And a great sense of honour. So here's skinny little Daryl that is sort of sitting at the table thinking, wow, imagine being a pastor and people's lives have changed like that. Pastor's perfect. I want to be a pastor because I want to be perfect. <laughs> and then I became a pastor and I wrecked the whole thing. 
But it was that sense of honour, that sense of, of honour for the house of God, that, that sense that we need to be projecting for generations to come. Rather than Hezekiah's attitude, well, hey, as long as I get church my way. And the sad part about it is sometimes as we've changed and churches are constantly evolving, the message doesn't change, but the method does. And so when I grew up, we sang hymns. And I remember going home to a friend's place one day because there was a move of the Holy Spirit and we didn't sing a hymn. And this particular friend's parents are sitting at the table having roast pasta, roasting the pasta, and saying, we didn't sing a hymn, someone needs to talk to the pastor. And I'm thinking, we had a move of the Holy Spirit. I was on my face at the altar, weeping before God, and you're worried that we didn't sing a hymn. Well, we don't even know what a hymn is these days. But the church is still growing. The church is still moving on. And sometimes people, and, and over the years, I had a, a lady say to me one day, Pastor, if you get rid of the drums, I'll give you $1,000. And I said, you know what? I'd love you $1,000. But if I get rid of the drums, in years to come, there won't be a church where the drums are part of the next generation. And we can't afford to just throw things out the door for the sake of it. And other people say, well, we just want the hymns the way we've always had it, and so on. And then say, where are your kids? Where are your grandkids? Why aren't they in church? When we were at Wyala and the church was growing, I had a couple stop coming, so I thought, better go and see them. They were regular in church, an older couple. And I said, are you guys okay? haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. You've wrecked the church, Pastor. Have I wrecked the church? There's all these new people. When we used to come, it was just a nice little church. Everybody knew us. You've wrecked the church. There's all these people that don't know us anymore. They just walk past us. They don't say hello. And I said, but isn't that what you were praying for? Wyella's 50, 55 years old now. Isn't that what you were praying for, that God would save people, that new people would come, that the church would grow? Yeah, but you've wrecked it. And I said, well, you need to thank God that I've wrecked it because it's actually about generations. It's actually, and again, where, is, where are your kids? Where are your grandkids? They're not going to church because they get roast pastor at home. They get pastors wrecking the church. All these new people are coming. Well, friends, we've got to have a generational thought. How is that affecting not my children only, but my grandchildren. How's that affecting my great-grandchildren? Because if my grandchildren stop going to church, my great-grandchildren aren't going to be in the house of God and, and so on. And so we've got to constantly say, God, as for me and my house, what does that say? Um, my watch says Richmond won the grand final in 2017. Okay. All right, let me just quickly run through this. Keys to your children's eternal future. Passion for their eternal well-being. Have a passion. I used to pray when I became a young pastor. As I said, I had no idea what I was doing and how to do this as a father. So I'd pray, Lord, I just pray for my wife that she'll be a perfect pastor's wife. And I pray for my kids that they'll be perfect pastor's kids. And then the Holy Spirit one day spoke to me and he said, Darryl, you're praying wrong. You need to pray God, help me to be a good husband, a godly husband. Help me to be a godly 
father. And, and there's times that both my wife and my son could tell you that I haven't necessarily been completely godly. I've made my mistakes and stuff like that. But that's my prayer. God, help me to be a godly example, a godly father, a godly husband, so that my children and their children will continue in the things of God. So pray for their eternal future. Rather than having that Hezekiah saying, well, God, just make the church comfortable for me while I'm on this planet. Who cares about future generations? Have that passion for their eternal well-being. Have that prayer. George McCluskey married, and when he married and started a family, he decided to invest one hour a day in prayer because he wanted his kids to follow Jesus. After a time, he expanded his prayers to include his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And every day he prayed for the next three generations. As the years went by, his two daughters committed their lives to Jesus and married men who went into ministry. Two other, these two couples then produced four girls and one boy. Each of the girls married ministers and the boy became a pastor. The first two children born to the next generation were cousins. And upon graduation from high school, these two cousins chose the same um, university or college and became roommates. During their sophomore year, whatever year that is, one boy decided to go into ministry. The other boy decided to become a psychologist and study psychology. The, psycho the pastor went on, H.B. London is his name, and I read a book now from him, talks about having a heart for pastors. It's called, um, they call me pastor, and it just tugs at my heart. But the other cousin that decided to choose psychology, he began to get a passion for families, for Christian families, and began to write books and be on radio and was on radio for more than a thousand stations each day named James Dobson. George McCluskey prayed when those children weren't even born. Both of them have affected the nation of the United States, James Dobson affecting the world through what he's discovered through Christian families and what he's taught as a result of that, through prayer. We don't know what we're praying for, but we've got to keep praying. Having a consistent model of the God life in the home. And in my studies of, of pastors' children, I'm currently doing some postdoctorate study interviewing pastors' kids. I might interview your daughter Naomi at some stage. <laughs> Can't interview Matthew. He'll tell me all the things I've done wrong. But and in terms of that, and so, but pastors' children, most of the pastors' children through this study in the United States said it wasn't that our dad was a pastor that caused our faith to continue. It was because of the warmth in the home and the godly example in the home that he cared for us in the home, that we had a, a relationship in the home that really made the difference. And in the same sense, for Christians, you know, we can be good Sunday Christians, but if we're not godly and setting the godly example in the home, what can happen is that our children see the inconsistency of that and decide, well, I don't want that, if that's what it's all about. Karl Marx's father was a Lutheran minister. And Karl Marx, when he saw his father then you know, changing religions for the sake of political advantage and so on, decided, well, I don't want this Christianity stuff. And he began to hate 
Christianity as a result. And as a result of that, started communism that we know of today. A guy by the name of Manning Clark, a um, historian, if you read, he's written a whole lot of stuff about the flogging parson speaking about Samuel Marsden, who's one of the early church fathers of our nation. What happened was his father, and you can read it in the history books, his father committed adultery with one of their maids that they had. And so the church then moved him, his father was a a minister, moved him on to the next place and sort of covered it all up and so on. Well, that put in this young man's heart, this resentment for the church, resentment for God. And so because of no godly example in the home, did all the things on Sunday, but no godly example. Come on down if the musos are ready to go. That would be great. And so in that sense, finally don't criticise. Have that consistent church attendance, that consistent youth group attendance. Don't criticise your pastor at the dining room table after church. Don't take, you know, all that stuff. But be building up the house of God, speaking about the wonders of what God is doing in the midst of that. And sometimes we have seasons where it's like winter and there's not a lot of growth and then we have a surge of spring and a surge of growth again. But let's always speak, especially in front of our children, as much as we could when we had issues that we needed to talk about, which you do have issues. As a pastor, we have issues with with people and stuff. We try and do that behind closed doors when our children were younger because we didn't want to engage them into thinking. You know, there's a story of one pastor, he was having an issue with a board member and he went home to his wife and told her and said, you know, this guy, blah, 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 blah. And then a couple of weeks later, he resolved it. They became best friends again. Everything's fine. Six months later, they're at a wedding and his wife happens to be sitting next to the board meeting member. Her husband hadn't told her they'd resolved it. So six months later, she starts getting stuck into the board member. How dare you speak to my husband? And the pastor sort of sitting there thinking, well, the board member, we resolved that. But they didn't pass it on. And so sometimes you just got to deal with stuff in your own sense or, you know, don't bring it to the kitchen table. Don't bring it to the dining table. As for me and my house, why don't we stand right? Choose this day who you will serve. Who am I going to serve, God? Are we going to serve the gods of of this world, the gods of this age? Are we going to serve my own particular career? Am I going to serve my own agenda? Or am I going to serve God? Choose this day. Choose this day that you and your children, as for me and my house, that you and your children and your children's children for a thousand generations may flourish in the plan and purpose of God, may know God. I want to pray right now, and it said at the start, I don't want anyone to have a sense of condemnation. I don't want to speak condemnation. I want to speak hope. Because God hasn't finished yet. When you're praying for your family, God hasn't finished with them yet. God has miracles in store. We used to pray in our church and and pray, God, invade people in their dreams. God, invade people. Get them asking the God questions and bring people, godly people across their paths that will talk to them about Jesus, that would not be legalistic or superstitious or 
religious, but people that are real, that you'd bring those people across their paths, people that our children, that, that generations within our church would be open to, that we could bring the truth of Jesus Christ. I pray that over your families right now. I pray that over your children. I pray, Lord God, awaken them in their dreams. Lord, awaken them to start asking the God questions. Awaken them to wonder about where they stand in the light of eternity. Awaken them, stir their hearts. Lord God, for their children, Lord God, for generations to come. Lord God, don't let this church die. Don't let the kingdom of God die. Lord, let this church continue to proclaim the wonder of Jesus. Let this church continue to build up the house of God and build up the people of God. We pray in Jesus' name. So reach out right now. I want to pray for people that really have a, a, a burden right now. Maybe there's unsaved um, children grandchildren and you've got a real heart and a burden for them right now and and in a sense even as I've been speaking there's been a weeping in your spirit thinking oh God I just don't want my children not to go to heaven I want my children I want my grandchildren I want generations to come into the kingdom of God well I'm going to speak over your life right now what Joshua said as for me and my house Lord God we don't have any Hezekiah attitudes in this place that says, who cares about the next generation? Lord, we have people in this house that are like Joshua, as for me and my house. Lord God, that want to choose, Lord, life for their generations to follow. In Jesus' name, they want to see the, the outwelling, Lord God, as we've read about Jonathan Edwards, Lord God, that his children and his grandchildren and generations that follow, Lord brought a great contribution to society. They don't all have to become pastors, but Lord, let them be godly men and women of God in Jesus' name. Lord, as George McCluskey, Lord God, and his great or grandson, great-grandson, Lord James Dobson has affected so many families throughout the planet. Lord God, let these children rise up in their place and be called blessed in Jesus' name. We declare it. We declare it. We bind the enemy. We tell Satan to take your hands off our children, our grandchildren, off the generations to follow in the name of Jesus. Lord, because your word says that I have come that they may have life, that they may have it abundantly, where the thief comes to kill, steal and destroy. We declare life, abundant life, eternal life, Lord God, over the generations that you have in store. In Jesus' name. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. My, my mum as a teenager used to teach Sunday school and, and she, you know, just served. Again, she wasn't an academic, but just served wherever she could as a teenager. But every now and then I'd come across somebody who goes, oh yeah, I taught them in Sunday school. And I think, wow, you know, those little words are carrying on the link of the blessing of God, of being encouraging. And friends, I want to tell you in church, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise up young men and women of God. And so look out, not just for your own children and generations. As grandparents, look out and see the other children. I'm going to build them up. I'm not going to beat them up. I'm going to build them up. I'm going to make them so glad they came to church. I'm going to make them so glad that as a Godly people spoke into their lives, into their hearts and encouraged them. Thank you, Jesus. Let this church flourish, God. 
Let the families of this church flourish. Lord God, let we pray for Gary, Pastor Gary and Pastor Jane. We just speak over their lives, Lord God, and we just speak flourishing. Lord, for a thousand generations. We speak flourishing, Lord God, not just in the kingdom of God, not just in their ministry, but Lord, we speak over their lives, generations of flourishing, godly men and women of God. In Jesus' wonderful, powerful, glorious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Pastor Gary and Pastor Jane. Thanks for the great opportunity to minister. God's got a great pastor here. Amen. The book is called As For Me and My House. As For Me and My House. I think that uh, with so many great things you'll find in that book uh, that will help us all as we lead our families. Can we give uh, Pastor Darrell another great hand for a great message? Wealth of experience and life journey through there. Really do thank you for being a part of our service this morning. It's been so good to minister alongside of you and, and serve with you and worship together with you. It's, it really is the, a great start to our week. We love it. Uh, we love you. We care about you. We're praying for you and believing God to come through for you in so many different ways. We pray that you have an incredible, incredible week. Don't forget Father's Day next Sunday morning. Going to be an absolute cracker. I, I've got to tell you, my, my, my dad joke made Jane laugh. So it's going to be a good joke. I always test jokes with Jane. So if it doesn't work, it's, it's, you have to tell, tell Jane, all right? So uh, it's going to be a great, great week next, uh, next week. So have a great day. Have a great week. Don't forget, you've been lit up to light up. And I believe that you've been renewed and transformed to bring renewal and to bring transformation. Have a great week. God bless.